This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 88th episode of the program. Today is March 31st, and before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the independent progressive media revolution. Today we have Nick Spiropoulos, and he wanted me to give a shout out to sciencebasedmedicine.org and scienceblogs.com slash insolence. I also want to thank Irene Humphrey, Dora Elizabeth Luna Rivera, Lorna Davidson, Juan Banda, Daphne Brulee, Connor Hodgins, Perry Ramstad, Ross Williams, Gregory Riggs, and Alpha Beach. So all of these individuals decided to support the program either by signing up to be Patreon patrons, signing up to be members on HumanistReport.com, or submitting a donation to us via PayPal. All of the information will be down below in the description box if you'd also like to support the show, but you can support us free of charge simply by liking our videos or sharing our videos, or if you are so inclined, you can even disable ad block and help us that way if you're willing to put up with YouTube's obnoxious ads. So on today's episode, I'll talk about the DNC Corruption All-Stars featuring Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazil. I'll discuss the YouTube advertisement boycott and what this means for independent media outlets like the Humanist Report. Also, Republicans voted to allow Comcast and Verizon to sell your internet history and private information. So I'll talk about that and tell you what Bernie Sanders has to say about it. Also, after the Republican health care plan failed, Bernie Sanders is now using this opportunity to push for a single-payer health care system. Additionally, I'll be talking about the latest development in the Democratic Party's anti-Russian hysteria, how the mayor of Baltimore betrayed her constituents, and I'll also discuss which Democrats are already caving to Donald Trump when it comes to his Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. And finally, I'll talk with Nick Branna, who is the founder of the Draft Bernie Sanders movement. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys enjoy the show. So at this point, I don't think it's a secret that both political parties are complete sellouts to large multinational corporations. The difference, however, is that the Democratic Party, they still try to lie and obfuscate the truth about their relationship with large multinational corporations, whereas Republicans don't really hide the fact that they're just corporate sellouts anymore. So, for example, to show just how brazen the Republican Party is with their relationship with big business, there was a vote that came up to repeal Obama-era FCC regulations that prohibited telecommunications companies, internet service providers, from selling your personal browsing history without your consent. Now, this benefits nobody but Comcast, Verizon, the most hated companies in the country. So you can't really support something like this, even if you are a gigantic corporate sellout, because how are you going to explain this vote to your constituents? I mean, you can't. You just look like a complete fraud. You look like a sellout. However, the Republican Party is so shameless in their corruption that they actually decided to vote to repeal these Obama-era regulations. They literally made it legal for Verizon and Comcast and AT&T to sell your internet browsing history without your consent. They have no shame. So Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept explains 
House Republicans voted to free internet service providers, primarily AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, from the Obama-era FCC regulations barring them from storing and selling their users' browsing histories without their consent. The vote followed an identical one last week in the Senate, exclusively along party lines. Now, to kind of give you a broad sense as to why this matters, it's hard to overstate what a blow to individual privacy this is. Unlike Silicon Valley giants like Facebook and Google, which can track and sell only those activities of yours which you engaged in while using their specific service, internet service providers can track everything you do online. These companies carry all of your internet traffic and can examine each packet in detail to build up a profile on you, explained two experts from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Worse, it is not particularly difficult to avoid using specific services such as Facebook that are known to undermine privacy, but consumers have very few choices for internet service providers. It's a virtual monopoly. Now, just generally speaking, uh, what he's saying here is important because you you have no escape. If you don't like the fact that Comcast will be selling your personal information, well, tough. You can't switch over to a different service because these companies like Comcast and Verizon, they hold monopolies. So you have no choice unless you just want to disconnect internet altogether. Now, it actually gets worse from here. So specifically, when we look at what they can sell, they can sell financial and medical information social security numbers, web browsing history, mobile app usage, even the content of your emails and online chats. And to make sure that this passed, Republican lawmakers are nuking the FCC privacy policy using a controversial legislative tool called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to nullify recently approved federal regulations. Resolutions of disapproval passed under the CRA cannot be filibustered and prohibit the agency in question, in this case the FCC, from adopting substantially similar privacy rules in the future. Now, what happened was after they voted to approve this measure, their offices were flooded with thousands of phone calls because their constituents were naturally outraged. However, they've decided to ignore those phone calls. They're not answering. Everything's going to voicemail. They're completely ignoring their constituents. And if you're wondering why these Republican sellouts would choose to allow Verizon and Comcast and AT&T to sell your social security number and sell your browsing history without your consent, well, the answer is simple. You just have to follow the money. And that's what we're going to do. So I want to point out a few familiar names. So in the Senate, Ted Cruz voted for this, and he took more than $40,000 from the broadband industry. We have Tom Cotton, also a supporter, took $70,000. Joni Ernst took almost $30,000. Lindsey Graham took $74,000. Mike Lee took $60,000. And John McCain took $84,000. And when you go to Mitch McConnell, he took $251,000 from the broadband industry, literally a quarter of a million. Also, Lisa Murkowski took 66000 Marco Rubio took 75000 And in the House of Representatives, Joe Barton took 39000 Representative Marsha Blackburn took 84000 She's on par with some senators even. And I mean, we got to take a moment here to send a special shout out to Representative Clay Higgins, who literally sold your online privacy for a measly $300 donation. And then Greg Walden of my state in Oregon took $155,000.
Now, for every Republican scumbag that's on that list, you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. However, they have no shame at all. They don't care how it looks. They are just ignoring constituents. So what you're going to have to do now is show up at their town halls and call them out. If they don't want to answer their phone calls, go to their town halls, show up in their office, and call them out for what they did. Because if you put public pressure on them, then that always has a huge impact. Now, just to really show you the scope of anger that they've cultivated here, when you go to Breitbart and look at the comment section, even they're pissed off about this, rightfully saying that this is an attack against freedom. Now, seeing that Republicans are also subject to this, Max Temkin, who is the creator of Cards Against Humanity, actually vowed to buy the browser history of every single congressman and woman and congressional aid and publish it. So what this means is that to any Republican that voted for this that may have something to hide, who might have some skeletons in his or her closet, maybe something of the homosexual nature, I'm looking at you, Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, well, it looks as though you might have just screwed yourself because we will be using this against you. You vote to sell out our data and think it's not going to impact you? No, we will use this against you because if you think that it's okay for these large corporations to sell our social security numbers and our personal browsing history. Well, we're going to do the same thing to you. Now, what you can do to avoid this is purchase a VPN. They should be ashamed of themselves, but again, they have no shame. These are scumbags. They're corporate sellout hacks who don't care about anyone but their donors. With the recent news that Republican thugs in Congress sold our internet privacy rights to Verizon, Comcast, AT&T, well, Bernie Sanders decided to take this opportunity to publicly shame them, and he released this post on Facebook. He said, My internet privacy policy is simple. Our information belongs to us, not corporations like Comcast and Verizon. Comcast and Verizon should not be able to track their customers and sell their personal information without the customer's permission. This is not a radical idea. This is common sense. And just this week, Republicans in the Senate voted to eliminate rules that would protect consumers' online data and personal information from being sold by internet providers. Not only that, they also prevented future privacy protections from being put into place. For my Republican colleagues who often say they are concerned about government intrusion on civil liberties, apparently it's fine if people's private information is sold to the highest corporate bidder without the consumer's knowledge. This undermines our civil liberties and privacy rights, which makes us a free nation. So I think that this is particularly clever because Bernie Sanders is using their own ideology against them. He's saying, look, you guys claim to be in favor of small government and privacy rights, but you're allowing corporations to take our information and sell it without our knowledge. And in another segment, I talked about how what they're selling, it's not just our browsing history. This gives them access uh, and the ability to sell our social security numbers, to sell the contents of our emails. So ordinary Americans, they have no choice. If you don't like that Verizon is going to be selling your information, well, you have no choice because all of these internet service providers like Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T, they have a monopoly on the market. So you can't even go to a competitor that wouldn't sell out your information. So what they did here was they really cornered consumers and they said, if you want internet, well, you have got to accept that you know your broadband provider is just going to sell your information. That's the way it is because they donated to us, they helped us get elected, and now they want that information and we want their money, so we're going to do what they want, not what you want. So, you know, this is something that 
it proves that the Republican Party is irredeemable. There's there's nothing that uh that makes them a good party. They're just a shell of a party. They don't represent voters at all. They only represent corporate America. And I'm glad that people are really speaking out, but I still feel as though the outrage isn't enough. Like with how angry this made me, I feel like we should be screaming at them at town halls like at every chance we get, I feel like we should be blowing up their phones, which we already are doing, but they're ignoring their phone calls. Like, I feel as though we haven't been given enough for how much we were betrayed by people who supposedly represent us. I mean, we live in a representative uh, democracy, and this is what's happening. In a republic, people who are supposed to represent your interests, they're only representing the rich, the elites, the multinational corporations, the broadband internet service providers that are going to take your social security number and the contents of your emails and sell them. Sell them to the highest bidder who wants to learn more about how they can advertise to you, presumably, or worse. So, the implications of this are really, really troublesome. Uh, and this sets a really dangerous precedent here. And, you know, this this really is a no-brainer. This is one of those things that are just common sense. This shouldn't be a bipartisan issue, but this was. I mean, uh, Republicans voted along party lines. There wasn't even one Democrat that supported this measure, including corporate sellouts like Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp. So this is something that nobody should be arguing about. This should just be something that we all accept that we are going to allow consumers to have their privacy rights. We're going to protect them from that. But they uh, don't like big government uh, telling corporations what to do. So, you know, they rail against big government because freedom, but at the same time, they support corporate fascism over anything else. So you're sacrificing one type of freedom for another freedom. Well, really, we know that you guys have no core principles. All that you stand for is... Uh, serving your donors so you keep your job. I mean, if you're a libertarian, you've got to stand up. I mean, us progressives, we call out the harmful actions of the Democratic Party because they're on the left, supposedly on the left, even though they're right wing. But I mean, ideologically speaking, they're closest to progressives and we call them out all the time. So I need all the tea parties, uh, tea partiers, the grassroots Republicans, any libertarians to speak out against this because this is reprehensible. You need to be outraged. Everyone should be outraged about this because this is something that is, it's outrageous. It's absurd. You should not be allowed to sell our information if we're your customer. And they allowed broadband providers to do this. It's unthinkable, and they have to be shamed at every chance that we get. President Donald Trump recently signed another executive order, this time rolling back Obama-era regulations that sought to curtail climate change. Now, this isn't really too surprising considering the fact that he <laughs> maintains that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, but regardless if it's surprising or not surprising, this is still problematic. So, BBC explains the president said this would put an end to the war on coal and job-killing regulations. The Energy Independence Executive Order suspends more than half a dozen measures enacted by his predecessor and boosts fossil fuels. Business groups have praised the Trump administration's move, but environmental campaigners have condemned it. Outside the White House, a few hundred protesters gathered to vent their displeasure at the executive order. So this is ostensibly a pro-business move, but in actuality, it's not a pro-business move. It's actually very anti-business because, you know, the funny thing about businesses is in order for them to exist, they actually have to be on a habitable planet. So if we continue to destroy the environment, I know that ExxonMobil loves getting that money uh, from destroying the planet. 
well, you still won't exist if there's no planet for you to exist on. You see how this works? And he talks about how this is, you know, a job-killing thing, how it, it, it uh, harms the economy. Well, guess what? You cannot have an economy, you cannot have any single business if you don't have a planet for those businesses to exist on. So climate change poses an existential threat, and we still don't know the full scale of consequences that will come to fruition with climate change yet. You know, Donald Trump is rolling the dice. He's saying, you know what, let's go ahead and continue to pollute. And I don't really care because I'm not going to be around when we really see climate change take effect. Now, Bernie Sanders wasted no time calling out Donald Trump's reprehensible executive order. You have a president who tells the world that in his view, after intensive study, he has concluded, unlike the rest of the scientific community, that climate change is a hoax emanating from China. And what he has done in appointing the people that he has appointed is a danger, a horrific danger, not only to our generation, but to our children and our grandchildren. Hey, Mr. President, listen to the scientists. Climate change is real. It is already causing devastating problems in our country and around the world. And if we don't transform our energy system away from fossil fuel, coal, oil, gas, into energy efficiency and sustainable energy, I worry very much about the planet the future generations will inherit. And by the way, despite Trump's rhetoric there, the corporate world understands that the future is sustainable energy. Most of the new investments are going into solar, which is exploding all over our country and all over the world, and into wind. What this guy is doing is really an international embarrassment and endangering the future of our country. And I will, along with many of my colleagues, do everything that we can to move this country in a very, very different direction than Trump is proposing. So the Financial Times, Mike Barnacle just pointed out to us, actually has a headline here that says ExxonMobil actually is calling on Trump to stick with the Paris Climate Accord. <laughs> I mean, how crazy could it be that the largest oil company in this country right right understands more than the president of the united states that is it, it to say that it trump's position is pathetic would be to understate uh where he is coming from it is absolutely pathetic and i love that when bernie sanders talks about donald trump he just doesn't hold back. He says everything that comes to his mind. And that's why people like Bernie Sanders, because he's an organic politician. He's not rehearsed. Uh, he's not scripted. He just says what's on his mind. And this was, in fact, a very pathetic thing for Donald Trump to do. Now, the thing that really frustrates me about this is Donald Trump, in signing these executive orders, he's contending that he's rolling back Obama's regulations that killed coal. But what he doesn't tell you is that coal has been declining for decades. This isn't a new phenomenon. Coal is outdated. And what Donald Trump could do if he really did, in fact, care about these coal workers who lost their jobs, because those jobs aren't coming back, even if he's going to promise that they will, they're not coming back. But what Donald Trump could do is invest in clean energy and put coal miners that lost their jobs back to work doing that in a new sector of the economy that will explode. But instead, he chose to increase military spending by $50 billion. So rather than investing in green, renewable technology, he said, you know what? I think the military needs an even bigger budget, so screw the coal workers. 
this. Donald Trump doesn't care about coal workers. What Donald Trump and the Republicans care about is the bottom line of CEOs of companies that pollute the planet. He cares about the profit margins of the fossil fuel industry that profit off of the destruction of our planet. This is everyone's planet. Climate change poses an existential threat to humanity. He's more concerned about the profits of his corporate friends. It, it's sickening to me, and it really is pathetic. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders called him out. Uh, and, you know, let's just do what we can to run a progressive and kick his ass out of office because this guy uh, is egregious. Our loathsome commander-in-chief, Donald J. Trump, is proving time and again that he doesn't give a damn about the American people. He only cares about enriching himself and his friends. And he's demonstrated this time and again. So, for example, I mean, he increased military spending while cutting funding to programs that help feed the poor. He is now deregulating Wall Street and is allowing them to behave in the same way that facilitated the 2008 economic crash. And, of course, taxpayers had to bail them out. And he knows that he can do this because taxpayers will bail them out. Out once again. He also is rolling back Obama-era climate change policies that protect the environment at the behest of the oil and gas industry. So in less than 100 days as president, Donald Trump has shown us that he is the living embodiment of corporate America and he represents everything that's wrong with the country and, you know, really we shouldn't be surprised that he's a corporate shill because he's a greedy billionaire. Now, Donald Trump is really rubbing in the fact that he doesn't give a damn about Americans, and he's really twisting the knife now because he is screwing over Americans while simultaneously giving his rich friends another gift. So, for example, the first thing he's doing is rolling back protections for individuals that default on student loans. So, the Washington Post explains, days after a report on federal student loans revealed a double-digit rise in defaults, President Trump's administration revoked federal guidance Thursday that barred student debt collectors from charging high fees on past due loans. The Education Department is ordering guarantee agencies that collect on defaulted debt to disregard a memo former President Barack Obama's administration issued on the old bank-based federal lending program known as the Federal Family Education Loan Program. That memo forbid the agencies from charging fees for up to 16% of the principal and accrued interest owed on the loans if the borrower entered the government's loan rehabilitation program within 60 days of default. So if you're a student that couldn't pay your student loans and had to default on your student loans, thus ruining your credit, Donald Trump is now making it easier for you to fall further into debt. What a really stand-up guy he is. Now, that's not all that he's doing, believe it or not, to screw over the American people. Surprise, right? So what he's doing, according to Think Progress, is Trump rescinded the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces order, also known as Executive Order 13673, that President Obama issued in 2014. That order required companies wishing to contract with the federal government to show that they've complied with various federal laws and other executive orders. Notably, Obama issued that order in tandem with Executive Order 13672, which prohibited contractors from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Some have argued that this will make it harder to enforce the LGBT protections President Obama implemented for employees of federal contractors, as well as many other protections those workers enjoyed. So, to kind of reiterate here what's happening, if you're a company that wants a federal contract with the government, you no longer have to prove to them that you're in compliance with anti-discrimination policies. You can still discriminate against gay and lesbian workers and be rewarded with 
a government contract. That's what he's allowing. But I mean, <laughs> he did hold up an LGBT flag one, so he's literally the most pro-gay president ever, according to his delusional supporters. But I mean, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Donald Trump has consistently done things that screw over the American people and average people. He's going out of his way to appease multinational corporations. So since his healthcare plan, which sought to give tax breaks to the richest 1%, failed, he's now looking to give the rich a standalone tax cut. He is now looking to pursue tax reform to do this. So Bloomberg explains the Republican tax plan reduces the corporate income tax rate from 35% to 20%. Now, if you think that's bad, it's actually a step up from what he originally proposed. So what he wanted to do when he first took office was he wanted to cut corporate taxes to 15%. And now he's hoping to land somewhere between 20 and 28%, which is still low. I mean, corporate tax taxes they're already at 35 percent that's not high enough in my opinion i think we need a much higher corporate tax rate but donald trump doesn't want to do that because donald trump is looking out for himself as well as his rich friends i mean he came from the elite class he is a billionaire so this shouldn't surprise anybody and anyone who was fooled into thinking that he cared about the working class should feel really foolish right now so donald trump is screwing over average americans while rewarding already greedy multinational corporations and surprise surprise when you continue to screw over the american people they don't like it so his approval rating recently sunk to 35 percent and this is because when other presidents screwed us over they at least gave us a few crumbs here and there to keep us somewhat satisfied but i mean you're giving us nothing trump what have you done for the american voter since you took office what have you done i mean we already know that whoever takes office whoever becomes the president they're going to be a puppet for corporate america but you can't be that brazen about it you have to give us something anything i mean you haven't given us anything and people will cite him uh killing the tpp right well that's taking away something that was bad but you have to give us something what are you proposing that will benefit the american voters you've given us nothing not a single thing but at the same time you've proposed tax breaks to the wealthy you've proposed to deregulate and gut obama era policies that sought to curtail climate change so you have given us nothing you are a disaster of a president and mother of god let's hope that the democratic party gets their act together by 2020 and hopefully we run a true progressive who can take you down because what you are doing is reprehensible trump you are a greedy oligarch who's looking out for yourself and nobody else but this isn't a surprise to anyone that's been paying attention so as of last week, the Republican health care proposal went down in flames. Now, this was a huge victory to anyone who simply believed that more people should have health care. Uh, however, this doesn't change the fact that the Affordable Care Act is still broken. It still needs to be reformed. I mean, insurance premiums are still rising. The cost of prescription drugs is exploding. So we still have to do something to fix the Affordable Care Act because it was moderate health care reform. What we really have to do is move towards a single-payer system. Now, Bernie Sanders is now swooping in and capitalizing on this opportunity to push for a single-payer healthcare system. There is one major country on Earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. It's the United States. And that country, our country, ends up spending almost double what the Canadians do, almost triple what the British do, far more than the French Scandinavians do. Now, why is it that we spend far, far more and get less? Our health care outcomes in many respects are not as good as many of these other countries. Why is it? 
Well, Mike hit it right on, you know, hit the nail on the head. It's, of course, the power of the insurance companies. For them, their goal is not to provide quality, cost-effective health care. It's to make as much money as they possibly can out of human suffering. Same thing for the drug companies. We have not had it. Mike is exactly right again. This is not just a Republican problem. It is a Democratic problem. Neither party has had the guts to stand up to the insurance companies and do what I think we need to do in legislation that I will offer, a Medicare for all single payer program. Medicare is a very popular program right now. It is a lifesaver when you get to 65. Let's expand it to everybody. We could save hundreds of billions of dollars in administrative costs, take on the drug companies. Companies. That is, Mike, in my view, the direction we have got to go. Yeah. Problem is, obviously, members of Congress, in many cases, don't have the guts to take them yeah, on. Yeah, but Medicare has only worked for 50 years. We have to give it some more time to see if it really works. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right, Rick. So this really is the best time. If you're going to push single payer, now is the time to do it because the Republican Party's shown that... One, they can't even cultivate the votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act after this is what they've been saying they would do as soon as they take office for seven years. And furthermore, their proposal failed and you can't just move on. Healthcare still has to be fixed. So this is an opportune time to really speak out and say, look, now is the time that we once and for all move towards a single payer system where every single American is covered and nobody dies or goes bankrupt because they can't afford to be ripped off by the health insurance industry. Now, the Huffington Post explains in the wake of the Republican failure to repeal the Affordable Care Act on Friday, leading figures in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party are rallying behind a single payer health insurance and a draft of other bold reforms. These lawmakers and grassroots leaders have long believed that the problems plaguing the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, are rooted in the original health care law's attempt to accommodate rather than gradually replace the private or for-profit health insurance system. And this is exactly it. What the Affordable Care Act was, was conservative health care reform that was created by the Heritage Foundation. It's reform that relies exclusively on the private insurance industry. And when you have insurance companies who have a profit to be made, they're not going to prioritize healthcare. So, so long as you have a system where health insurance companies can rip people off, you will never have adequate healthcare. People will still go bankrupt. People will still die even if they have health insurance coverage. So, what they're doing now, what Bernie Sanders and other Democrats and some Democrats are doing is they are introducing Bill H.R. 676, which is sponsored by Representative John Conyers, called the Expanded and Improved Medicare for All Act, and it is being co-sponsored by the likes of Tulsi Gabbard, Keith Ellison, Raul Grijalva, John Lewis, Elijah Cummings, and Pramila J. Pal, to name a few. Now, what I would like everyone to do is search for their representative, do a control F, put your representative's name here, and if their name doesn't show up on this list, then you need to call them immediately and urge them to support HR 676. Another thing you can do is go to justicedemocrats.com and sign their petition, which I will link to, which basically demands that all Democrats support this initiative. Now, here's the thing about this bill. Uh, this is what a majority of Americans are in favor of. When you look at public opinion polls, a majority of Americans support a single-payer Medicare for All system. So I don't care if your representative is a Democrat or a Republican. You have to be on the side of the American people. You have to stop being a coward and actually stand up to the private insurance industry. And the way that we 
make them do this is we put pressure on them publicly. Now, thankfully, you guys are one step ahead of me because grassroots activists have been flooding their representatives with calls across the country. Uh, members of the Democratic Party are talking about this, but what we have to do is do it more. Do it every single day. Call them at least once or twice per day and let them know that they must support this or they will be primaried because this is a no-brainer. What everyone in the Democratic Party needs to be doing right now, and I'm talking about the establishment Democrats, is question whether or not they're going to allow their constituents to continue to die because they're too afraid to take on the health insurance industry. And if they are, then we all know what should happen. They should be primaried and kicked out of office because they don't represent their constituents. And that's no longer acceptable. So we are all watching. And Bernie Sanders and these Democrats are actually courageous. They're doing something that will save lives. And this will also stimulate the economy because if we have more money every single month, we don't have to pay these outrageous prices and healthcare premiums. Well, then we can put that money back in the economy. So this is a win-win for everyone with the exception of the health insurance industry. But I don't care about them. I don't care about the existence of this industry that serves to uh, make their CEOs a profit. What I care about is getting the American people coverage. And this is what the Democratic and Republican parties should care about. And if they don't, they go bye-bye. So please call them. Do everything you can to put pressure on them because now is the time to act. Will this bill pass while we have a Republican-controlled Congress? Of course it won't. But if we get the Democratic Party to rally around single-payer and they make this the defining issue, then this will be a good thing for the electorate. It'll be a good thing for the American people. Because I don't care who passes single-payer, Republicans, Democrats, if Satan himself manifests in Congress and passes this bill... I don't care. I want people to have health care coverage. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are. Everyone should have coverage. This is what other modern industrialized countries do, and it's time we join them. Time and again, the Democratic Party has shown that they have no spine and they're not willing to stand up to Republicans. However, when it comes to the issue of Neil Gorsuch being confirmed to the Supreme Court, I've actually been pleasantly surprised because they have yet to back down from their claim to filibuster Neil Gorsuch. This is surprising to me, and I still am waiting for them to back down, but Chuck Schumer is maintaining that they will, in fact, be trying to block his nomination. Now, there's two reasons why I think they must oppose Neil Gorsuch. The first is based on principle. It's because if you vote to confirm him to the Supreme Court, you are rewarding Republican obstructionism. They blocked Obama's nominee when it was Obama's constitutional duty to nominate someone. Even if I disliked Merrick Garland, it was still Obama's justice to name. So if you approve of Neil Gorsuch after they did that, you're rewarding bad behavior, and they will, in fact, do it again, and you cannot allow them to be rewarded for behaving badly. Now, second of all, we have to oppose Neil Gorsuch based on the policy substance as well, because for some reason, large multinational corporations and billionaires really like Neil Gorsuch. They are spending $10 million to get him on the Supreme Court, and when Neil Gorsuch was recently asked about the $10 million being spent to get him on the Supreme Court in dark money, his response was, you know, it is what it is. So that's what he thinks about money in politics. That's what he thinks about legalized bribery. So we have to oppose him based on principle and policy. And thankfully, most Democrats up until this point have pledged to do that. However, there are a couple of Democrats that have chosen to put their tail between their legs and they're now caving to Neil Gorsuch. Can you guess who? 
It's the usual suspects. So the Huffington Post explains, Senator Joe Manchin announced Thursday that he will vote for Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch, making him the first Democrat to announce support for President Donald Trump's court pick. Senators have a constitutional obligation to advise and consent on a nominee to fill this Supreme Court vacancy, and simply put, we have a responsibility to do our jobs as elected officials, Manchin said in a statement. After considering his record, watching his testimony in front of the Judiciary Committee, and meeting with him twice, I will vote to confirm him to be the ninth justice on the Supreme Court. He has been consistently rated as a well-qualified jurist, the highest rating a jurist can receive, and I have found him to be an honest and thoughtful man, Manchin said. I hold no illusions that I will agree with every decision Judge Gorsuch may issue in the future, but I have not found any reasons why this jurist should not be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, maybe because Republicans stole this nomination away from President Obama? That's not a good enough reason alone? Now, literally just minutes after Joe Manchin announced that he would be caving to Republicans and will be voting to confirm Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, guess who else caved? Heidi Heitkamp. He has a record as a balanced, meticulous, and well-respected jurist who understands the rule of law, Heitkamp said in a statement. During our meeting at his hearing, he reinforced the importance of a judiciary that remains independent of the executive and legislative branches of government, and that acts as a proper check and balance on the other two branches of government. I expect him to follow through on that critical tenet. Oh, do you now, Heidi? You really think that he's going to get on there and be impartial and not take Republican ideals into consideration like all the other Supreme Court justices do all the time? This is so frustrating to me. Uh, and they really don't care. I mean, I recently covered a segment where Joe Manchin on a conference call with constituents when they tried to confront him about his corporatism and siding with Republicans. He said, you know what? I'm not changing. Vote me out. Verbatim, that's what he said. I'm not changing. Vote me out. So they have no regard for their constituents, and even though they claim to be part of the so-called liberal party, they refuse to be liberal. They refuse to actually stand up to Donald Trump in any meaningful way because they keep approving Donald Trump's harmful nominations. I mean, Joe Manchin literally voted for a racist to be the attorney general. This is a very important position. But you chose Jeff Sessions. You voted to confirm him to be the U.S. Attorney General. And also, he voted to confirm Scott Pruitt to be on uh, to be on the EPA, to be the new EPA chief, because he stated that he thinks what Obama did uh, was criminal. And he was referring to how Obama tried to put in place some regulations on the fossil fuel industry. So these two Democrats must be shamed. If you continue to act out and go against the will of your constituents, they have to be shamed. This is unacceptable. I mean, on the one thing that Democrats should remain strong on, they're caving immediately. I mean, the vote isn't until April 7th, I believe. They have weeks, and they're caving this early. And when it comes to Joe Manchin, when I found out that he would be confirming Neil Gorsuch, I thought, oh God, this is going to be a domino effect, and more Democrats will fall in line uh, behind Joe Manchin and vote to approve Neil Gorsuch because they don't have a spine. And then I didn't even have to finish the article. And then we got to Heidi Heitkam. So this is unacceptable. These two corporate sellouts, these spineless Democrats have to be primaried. And uh, if, they're, if they're not successfully primaried, then you might as well just vote for the Republican because that's what you're getting. 
The Democratic Party's ongoing anti-Russian hysteria reached a new level of absurdity recently, and their rhetoric has now become so extreme that it borders on lunacy. And that's not hyperbole. So this all originated when they claimed that Russia's alleged hacking into the emails of John Podesta and the DNC was tantamount to a Russian election hacking. Now, they didn't claim that Russia hacked into the, into the voting booths, but they wanted to plant that seed so maybe you would think it by saying Russian election hacking. Now, the media went along with this narrative and worked in tandem with the Democratic Party establishment to promote this idea because anti-Russian sensationalism is giving them a huge ratings boost, which is why people like Rachel Maddow have gone so far as to literally imply that Bernie Sanders supporters only disliked Hillary Clinton because of Vladimir Putin's disinformation campaign. And just like McCarthyists do, they have attacked any and everyone who didn't go along with this narrative. So I've been called a Kremlin shill because I don't buy into this narrative because God forbid they show us at least one shred of evidence. And of course, you know, the fact that John McCain and Lindsey Graham are on board but progressives aren't, well, that just shows how unreasonable progressives are being, according to them. Hmm, I wonder why two of the biggest warmongers in the country, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, would go along with this narrative. It couldn't possibly be that their defense contractor donors would stand to gain something from a new Cold War, or potentially a new hot war with Russia, right? I mean, they use the two biggest warmongers in the country to legitimize their claims. Well, if Republicans are on board, then certainly progressives better be on board with this story. Uh, no, we see through the bullshit, and we're watching the realignment of the Democratic Party and neoconservatives happen before our very eyes. Now, the problem with all of this is they've now gotten so crazy that they are attracting the worst of the worst in terms of what humanity has to offer. Now, to give you an example of this, this is what war criminal Dick Cheney, who should be in prison right now, had to say about this. The fact that he took uh, his capabilities in the cyber area and used it to try to influence our election. There was a very serious effort made by Mr. Putin and uh, his, uh, his government and his organization to interfere in major ways with our basic fundamental democratic processes. In some quarters, that would be considered an act of war. Now, Dick Cheney is referring to this as an act of war for a very specific reason. You don't call something an act of war unless you believe that we should actually respond militarily. And I shouldn't have to explain to you what this war criminal's intentions are. He committed crimes against humanity. He profits off of death and destruction. But can you guess who is now agreeing with Dick Cheney? The Democratic Party establishment. I've never agreed with Dick Cheney in my entire life. Yeah. But when he said this was an act of war, I have to agree with the former vice president. It was an act now, if you think that Donna Brazil is the only Democrat that is aligning with Dick Cheney, it's not the case, unfortunately. So The Hill explains Democratic lawmakers are publicly calling out Russia for engaging in war by meddling in the U.S. presidential election. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman most recently accused Russia of engaging in warfare. I think this attack that we've experienced is a form of war, a form of war on our fundamental democratic principles, Coleman said during a hearing this week at the House Homeland Security Committee. 
I actually think that their engagement was an act of war, an act of hybrid warfare, and I think that's why the American people should be concerned about it, said Representative Jackie Speer of California. This past election, our country was attacked. We were attacked by Russia, said Representative Eric Swalwell of California. I see this as an opportunity for everyone on this committee, Republicans and Democrats, to not look in the rearview window, but to look forward and do everything we can to make sure that our country never again allows a foreign adversary to attack us. Senator Ben Cardin, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's ranking member, has similarly described the election meddling as an attack and likened it to the United States' political Pearl Harbor. You don't resort to this type of alarmist rhetoric unless you want to legitimize military action against Russia. It's very clear what they're doing. The question is, why they're doing this. Now, it's hard to say, but we know that the Democratic Party doesn't have a message of their own. And typically, if a party doesn't have anything to offer the American people, well, what they can do to attract voters is create a common enemy. That way, they can promise to take on that enemy during the next election. And politicians employ this strategy because it works. Look at it now. Look how many people are buying into this false narrative. And they're able to generate support this way without actually having to come up with a message and offer policy to voters and nothing cultivates patriotism more than a foreign threat so i mean this russian hysteria is a political ploy to just win over the american public that's all it is and the media is working in tandem with them to push this narrative because nothing drives up ratings more than a major threat or potentially a war with another country so they're literally willing to risk a nuclear war Presumably because they just want to play politics. And even if you give them that everything they're alleging is true, if we can determine that it was Russia that hacked into the DNC and John Podesta, which we have yet to see the evidence for, uh, is that really worth risking a war over? I mean, do we really need to escalate tensions between the United States and Russia over emails that should have been public in the first place? This is unacceptable. The Democratic Party is so lost. Rather than reaching out to voters with a policy that would change their lives, raising the minimum wage, a single-payer health care, they're choosing to do this. This is what they're choosing to do. They are so loathsome right now. I get so outraged anytime I hear about this. It, it's so frustrating. If Russia hacked you, then Russia wouldn't have had any impact on the election if you hadn't screwed over Bernie Sanders supporters in the first place. So by saying that Russia rigged the election, you're inadvertently admitting that you rigged the election because what was it that Russia released? They released information that the DNC violated its own charter to sabotage Bernie Sanders. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Anyone who claims this is an act of war is an idiot. They're a bad person because what they want is for this to be a real war. They wish it were an act of war so that way they could take action against Russia. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if they started to egg on Donald Trump to actually take military action against Russia. The Democratic Party is insane. They are the new neoconservatives. They are absolutely insane. This is lunacy. During an interview with Greta Van Susteren on MSNBC, Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz was asked to respond to Bernie Sanders' criticism of the Democratic Party. Now, Bernie contends that the party has got to be more grassroots. They've got to move away from big money donors and stop relying on multinational corporations to fund their elections. Now, Debbie was asked to respond to this criticism specifically, but before I even get to that, I can't not mention how unexpectedly hilarious the introduction was. Last summer, during 
during the election, WikiLeaks exposed committee emails showing staffers appearing to side with Secretary Clinton over Senator Bernie Sanders. That led to the chairwoman of the DNC stepping down. And with me is that former DNC chair, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Democrat from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That was amazing. And this is how every single mainstream media pundit should introduce Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She is and will forever be known as the failed DNC chair who was forced to resign in shame because she couldn't even abide by the DNC's own charter because she was looking out for herself. She wanted to rig the election in favor of Hillary Clinton so that way she would be part of Hillary Clinton's administration. She wanted a job with Hillary Clinton, hence why she was trying to rig it against Hillary Clinton's opponents. But putting that aside uh, <laughs> and how amazing that introduction was, well, she actually responded to Bernie Sanders and what he had to say. So here's her reaction to Bernie Sanders, followed by her response. And first, I'd like to get your reaction, Congresswoman, to Senator Bernie Sanders, what he said earlier today. Clearly, the Democratic Party needs a top-down overhaul, and that top-down overhaul means that instead of becoming dependent and being dependent on big money interest for campaign contributions, it has got to become a grassroots party. It has got to start speaking and acting and fighting for working people, for young people. Perez has got to capitalize that, and that's the kind of party I think has to, the Democrats have to create. Cashman, I'm mean, sort of a little bit like what I heard four years ago when the Republicans were doing autopsy after they lost the election in um, 2012. Um, but is Senator Bernie Sanders right? Um, does it have to start at the top and come down? And if so, how do you do that? Well, I mean, first, let me just say um, it. I'm not sure why the chair of either national political party asking for staff resignations is news, because it's a pretty routine practice. It is important for each chair to be able to, you know, shuffle the footprint and make sure that they analyze their staffing so needs. What about, and that's what all about what, that this was? What about what uh, Senator Bernie Sanders says? I mean, what's going on with the Democratic Party, or what should go on? Well. You know, respectfully to Senator Sanders, um, we are already a grassroots party. I mean, if we were not, we would not have been able to help bring down the absolutely abhorrent health care repeal bill that uh, that would have knocked 24 million people over 10 years off of their health care, that would have increased costs astronomically for people who were between 50 and 64 years old, increased prescription drug prices. So he's wrong. And so, no. Um, I, it's actually more like semantics. We all agree that we should be and we are a grassroots party that focuses on making sure that we can help people reach the middle class. I think, though, the Republican Party, there are a lot of Republicans who voted for Donald Trump who would say, you know, so the populist movement would say they're the grassroots, they're the Tea Party. I mean, I mean, everyone's sort of, you know, everyone's sort of trying to hijack that term. Um, actually, if you look at the, 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 the facts, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote the majority of voters that went to the polls to choose their choice for president chose Hillary Clinton and our agenda. So the American people actually overwhelmingly agree with us, and they proved it again on Friday when the, the Republicans had to abandon their abhorrent health care repeal plan because it hurt millions of people and it wasn't even something they could stomach. Respectfully to Bernie Sanders, we are already a grassroots party. Really, Debbie? If I'm not mistaken, you were the same person who defended the use of superdelegates because you said that they were kind of the failsafe to protect the establishment against the grassroots. Unpledged delegates exist really to make sure that 
Party leaders and elected officials don't have to be in a position where they are running against grassroots activists. So now you're saying you already are a grassroots party, but back then, during the primaries in 2016, you were contending that the grassroots, or you implied certainly that the grassroots were a problem and they kind of got in the way of the Democratic Party establishment. So which is it? And you don't realize that when you say things like this, you make yourself look absolutely ridiculous because you're literally trying to convince us that the same party that had to undergo training just so that way they can learn how to talk to real people is actually out there in the trenches with ordinary Americans organizing with the grassroots activists. She's saying the same party that rejected a ban on corporate lobbyist money is supposedly grassroots. Debbie, there's not a single person that believes you. Not one. What you're saying is factually incorrect. Now, what she's probably referring to is the January 15th rally that was held across the country where for the first time in years, congressional Democrats actually held rallies with their constituents to urge Congress not to repeal the Affordable Care Act. However, you don't get to take credit for this because this was organized by Bernie Sanders. When he was made the Democratic Party's outreach leader, he organized this event. So you don't get to take credit for that because you are part of the same group of Democrats that contend, well, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat, so, you know, we'd love to have him, but he's an independent. So until he's actually a Democrat, then we can't really get behind Bernie Sanders. However, you don't get to take credit for something that Bernie Sanders does if you claim he's not a Democrat, which is it. You can't only say that Bernie Sanders is a Democrat and is part of your team when it's convenient for you. Now, she also tries to take credit for what constituents in town halls across the country is doing. She said, well, you know, as evidence that we defeated this abhorrent repeal attempt by the Republicans to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, well, you saw what we did. We rose up in town halls across the country. But, Debbie, you don't get credit for that as well. The constituents that showed up to town halls across the country to demand that they did not repeal the Affordable Care Act, well, those same constituents were showing up at Democratic town halls. Now she claims here, you know, what Bernie Sanders is saying, it's more like semantics because, quote, we all agree that we should be and we are a grassroots party. Debbie, you are not a grassroots party. The reason why you lost and were decimated and have zero power in every single level of government is because you moved away from the grassroots and you specifically facilitated the shift. I mean, you were the one who rolled back President Obama's ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC. President Obama was a corporate Democrat through and through, but even he realized that, you know, maybe it's a bad look and maybe people will think that we're not representing them because we aren't. So maybe we should at least put this ban on lobbyist contributions so that way it appears as though we represent the voters. You did away with that. So you're honestly trying to tell us now that you're the party of grassroots? And then she goes on to cite the popular vote as if the people that voted for Hillary Clinton didn't just vote for her as a means of defeating Donald Trump. This implies that people were enthusiastically supporting Hillary Clinton when she was one of the most historically disliked candidates ever. And she claims that the American people overwhelmingly agree with the party. Well, agree with you on what? What do you stand for? Because anytime I see a Democrat asked what it is the party stands for, uh, they have no answer. So agree with you on what? What we agree with is the policies that Bernie Sanders is espousing. And we agree with Bernie Sanders because he's actually talking about the policies. He's not espousing platitudes that mean nothing, that have zero substance, unlike the rest of the Democratic Party establishment. Because if you don't actually have something 
like a tangible policy that would really benefit voters, you can't do anything but espouse platitudes. So I don't know what you're talking about here, Debbie, but you're making yourself look really foolish and not a single person believes that the Democratic Party is already the party of the grassroots. You are the party of corporate America and you aren't even trying to hide that now. So the fact that you would try to entertain this idea that you're already grassroots, well, this implies that you don't think the Democratic Party should do anything. You don't think that they need to reform at all. When you were wiped out, again, in the House, the Senate, the White House, uh, you don't hold a majority of governorships. You also do not hold a majority of legislatures. I mean, we're getting to the point where Republicans can actually amend the Constitution because of you, because of your leadership at the DNC, and because of corporate Democrats that refuse to represent their constituents and excite the base. So... Yeah, the party isn't grassroots, nobody believes you, and you do need to reform, and I don't know why you're talking on MSNBC, you have zero credibility, again, you resigned in shame, Debbie. Former interim DNC chair Donna Brazil is continuing her media tour, and in the process, she is making a complete fool of herself. Now, I'm saying this because she, yet again, decided to contradict herself. So, in her interview on The Daily Show, uh, she said... Baby, I ain't got nothing in response to the allegation that she leaked a town hall question to Hillary Clinton. Now, she then admitted that she leaked a town hall question to Hillary Clinton in an op-ed for time, and she stated, quote, I will forever regret giving Hillary Clinton an email in advance. And now, on Sirius Satellite XM Radio, she is claiming that the authenticity of those emails are bogus. So at first, she contends that she didn't give Hillary Clinton a question in advance of a town hall, then she claims she did, and she regrets it. And now, she's claiming that, you know, maybe those emails, uh, maybe they're bogus, and I didn't actually give her a question in advance. She doesn't realize that she's making herself look like a complete crazy person. However... You know, it, what's actually sad is that that wasn't even the worst part. The contradiction wasn't even the worst part of the clip that I'm about to show you. So let's watch. I have never fought a, a Russian uh, military intelligence unit. And anyone who has ever been involved in politics knows that you go up against opponents. Sometimes you're, they're Democratic because you're a Democrat and it's a primary. Uh, sometimes it's Republican because it's a general election. But how many of you have ever experienced uh, cyber warfare, cyber espionage? How many of you understand what a, a, a disinformation campaign? How many of you understand that uh, when emails are sent and they're out of contact, context and you just have content how they can be weaponized to so discard well I, I can tell you so much about cyber warfare the 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 intended victim was not uh, the men and women who work at the Democratic National Committee the intended victim was Hillary Clinton uh, who was running for president of the United States and the rest of us me included we're collateral damage and how do you come to understand what that means in the context of what we call a modern uh, cyber warfare. Well, uh, I have that experience now. Uh, and, and it's an experience that, that I hope to uh, help others understand because if this is the modern warfare that we all have to participate in, we all better get ready for it. And I'm grateful for those who stood by us and understood that it was warfare. I mean, for months, uh, with the exception of the, the, the women sitting here and Tina, who's not here, but she's always with us in spirit. I mean, you would have thought I was crazy. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, when I would call Mignon, God bless her, and she didn't hang up on me. I had people who really thought I was going crazy. In fact, Zerlina, I stopped going on TV because everybody started saying, well, how do you know they're Russian? Well, God damn it, I know the difference between America right. and, and something that's <laughs> right. foreign. Right. And ain't nobody ever cussed me out in those kind of words because I don't even understand those words because I can cuss you back. This was This was a massive campaign. And when you see people like uh, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney. I've never agreed with Dick Cheney in my entire right. life. Yeah. But when he said this was an act of war, I have to agree with the former Vice President. It was an act of war. And we better understand the ramifications. Uh, because if they can take down a woman of stature like Hillary Clinton with bogus stuff, and then you have to disprove the negative uh, mm-hmm. to make it somehow or another truthful. You cannot. And when the national media, and listen to me, my friends, when the national media is complicit also uh, and carrying on the, 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 the fake narrative, uh, the fake emails, the spoofing. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know where to begin with that because Donna lately, you know, she's said so many incoherent things that I'm beginning to question her sanity, literally. Like I'm beginning to question, uh, you know, if she's grounded in reality because what she's saying is really strange she said here uh she talks about the release of the dnc emails as quote cyber warfare and asks how many people understand a disinformation campaign uh i do because that's what you guys did to bernie sanders you waged a disinformation campaign against him you tried to smear him as an atheist in the south you tried to create narratives that, you know, his campaign, he just couldn't get his act together, which is why they lost, not because the DNC rigged the primaries. This is what was found out in those emails. So, yeah, we absolutely know about a disinformation campaign. And trust me, we all know that you know about it, too, not because you were subject to a disinformation campaign, because up until this point, you never doubted the authenticity of these emails. But now that you're claiming that they're bogus, all of a sudden it's a disinformation campaign. Well, you claim that you regret doing something that you were exposed doing in these emails so if these emails are authentic then that's not a disinformation campaign that's just exposing the truth about you and the dnc and what you did to sabotage bernie sanders campaign donna now up until this point she's maintained that she's the real victim you know her emails were stolen people are taking her emails out of context and whatnot and she's the victim however now she's saying the real victim is actually hillary clinton because i was just collateral damage yes a powerful oligarch that had a major party organization trying to destroy her opponents for her who also had multiple mainstream media pundits doing propaganda for her was the real victim so you should feel sorry for her not bernie sanders who was screwed over by the dnc's bias you're not the victim bernie sanders was revealed as the victim because you were violating your own charter to sabotage bernie sanders why do you think that you can cultivate sympathy after you were exposed as doing something bad we don't feel sorry for you you should feel sorry for the voters who you screwed over you should feel embarrassed so according to donna brazil it's not the criminal who's guilty for doing the crime in the first place it's whether or not the witness ratted them out or maybe it's the case that you're just mad that you got caught defrauding your own base sabotaging a candidate in a primary that you claimed was fair that's what happened donna you are not the victim here you are the criminal here because you were the one who violated the dnc's own charter and if it's the case that russia did in fact meddle in the election well then what they revealed that tipped the scales in favor of hillary in favor of donald trump against hillary clinton well apparently that must have been bad right so that implies there by saying russia rigged the election by saying they meddled in u.s affairs you're inadvertently admitting that you did do something wrong because how would they sow discord unless you were guilty? 
we weren't making this up. These emails aren't fake because you claimed that you will forever regret doing what these emails exposed you of doing. But now all of a sudden they're bogus. Now, she also said that the Russians took down Hillary Clinton with bogus stuff and claimed that the media was complicit. So that was where we got to the contradiction where after saying, you know, I will forever regret giving Hillary Clinton a question in advance of a town hall, she's now saying that uh, the Russians took down Hillary Clinton with bogus stuff. So why did you admit that you lied? Why did you say you will forever regret giving Hillary Clinton a question in advance of a town hall if everything that they released was bogus? Because you're now calling the authenticity of everything that was released into question. So you can't get your story straight, Donna. And furthermore, she talks about the media. She calls out the media because they were complicit. Donna, what world are you living in? Because if I'm remembering correctly, maybe I'm the only one who recalls, but CNN, the Clinton News Network, was literally trying to discourage people from looking at these emails. Also interesting is remember, it's illegal to possess uh, these stolen documents. It's different for the media. So everything you learn about this, you're learning from us. So even though Donna Brazil is going on this media tour to repair her broken public image, just know that we all will remember the fact that you were fired from CNN because you demonstrated unethical journalistic behavior and you also worked in tandem with the DNC to sabotage the campaign of Bernie Sanders. So you don't get to play the victim, you're a liar and you keep contradicting yourself more and more. Every time you speak, there's a new contradiction. Every time you speak, you go on another incoherent tirade. Donna, you are making yourself look like a crazy person. So if you really want to repair your public image, the best thing you can do is go away so that we all forget about what a horrible, crazy person you really are. Claire McCaskill is a corporate Democrat that recently voiced concerns that she would be challenged by a primary opponent that was to the left of her in 2018 because she just isn't pure enough. Well, recently, she's deciding to call on the people who she has been critical of for help. So in an article for The Hill titled, McCaskill to Sanders Backers, I Need You, I Want You, she is begging Bernie Sanders supporters to come to her rescue because she thinks she's going to be primaried by someone who is a progressive in 2018. This makes no sense because if you think you're going to get a left-wing challenger, why would you think that progressives would back you over someone who's more progressive? I mean, what have you done for us? Are you supporting a single-payer healthcare system? Did you endorse Bernie Sanders during the primaries? Because, I mean, we, we supported people like Jeff Merkley and Keith Ellison who endorsed Bernie dur during the primaries. But, I mean, you were a vocal advocate for Hillary Clinton. You said there's no way that Bernie Sanders w would win the primary. So... And look, the way you said it was pretty condescending. Let's be realistic here. And all of a sudden, oh, Bernie, Bernie, right. Bernie. I think it's, um, uh, uh, I think Bernie is too liberal uh, to gather enough votes in this country to become president. And I think Hillary Clinton is going to be a fantastic president. So it's, it's weird to me that you think we would come to your rescue when we don't like you, Claire. You've shown nothing but contempt for us. The party has shown nothing but contempt for us. And now you expect us to come to your rescue when we've been shunned Time and again, I mean, the primary was rigged against us and the party refuses to acknowledge that that was the case. They just uh, decided to shun us again by electing Tom Perez over even someone who was moderately progressive like Keith Ellison to be the DNC chair. So, 
I find this hilarious, but let's go ahead and get into the article. So The Hill explains, Senator Claire McCaskill pitched party unity during a recent fundraiser urging supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders to be involved with her re-election campaign, according to audio posted by the state Republican Party. All of you who are Bernie supporters, I need you. I want you. I want to talk to you. I want you to be part of our effort. We can't get divided in a state like Missouri or we're cooked, she added. I'm a little worried about a primary against me because I think Republicans would want to return the favor, she said. I think the Republicans might give a lot of money to one of my primary opponents doing a similar thing to what I did for Todd Akin. McCaskill was referring to her campaign running ads during the three-way GOP primary in 2012 that touted Akin's conservative credentials in a bid to help him win his party's Senate nomination. Referring to her 2012 ads, McCaskill added during the fundraiser that I know Republicans would love to return the favor, so I've got to be very careful about making sure we all stay together. <laughs> okay, Claire, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a prick, but we don't care about you. <laughs> if the Missouri Republican Party wants to pour money into the campaign of your primary opponent, who is more progressive than you, then so be it. I think this is a win-win. And what she's implying here is, you know, if they if they help to elevate someone who's to the left of me in Missouri, well, certainly uh, that person will lose and a Republican will take this seat in the Senate. Well, Claire, what you fail to realize is that we don't just support Democrats. We don't care about party unity. We're not going to unify behind your corporatist suits and ties. That's unacceptable and it's not going to happen. The reason why we support Bernie Sanders in the first place was because of the policies that he is talking about. I mean, he wants to give us a single-payer healthcare system. He wants to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. What have you done for us? What have you proposed that would benefit the lives of normal Americans? What would you? What have you done that would substantially help the working class? Nothing. You got behind a corporate candidate. You backed the wrong pony that had the grassroots momentum working against her. And you decided to support Hillary Clinton because you didn't want to change the way things are going in the country when your constituents are begging you to be more left-wing, when they're begging you to be more progressive and to support things that could literally save lives like a single-payer healthcare system. And now you have the audacity after doing nothing for us, after offering us nothing, to ask us to join your effort. Well, what's your effort, Claire? What do you stand for? What's your cause? What are you, what are you trying to sell to the American people? Because clearly you're going to have a message, right? What's that message? Are you going to get behind single payer? Of course you're not because you're a corporatist shill. All you do is get in and do incremental change that only modestly benefits the working people, if even that. And if Republicans in Missouri think that they can beat a justice Democrat, for example, who will be challenging you, who supports a single-payer system, who supports getting money out of politics, well, guess what? Those are issues that have bipartisan and nonpartisan support. You have to talk about things that will benefit the American people, but you would rather shill for Hillary Clinton and shill for the establishment and then have the nerve to ask us to come to your rescue. Nobody's going to rescue you, Claire McCaskill. You had many years in the Senate where you could have proven to us that you're with us and not your donors, but you didn't do that. You chose to be corporatist. You chose to back Hillary Clinton, who wanted to get us involved in more wars, who wanted to do more corporate policies, just like the Republicans. So why would we support you? Why, why would you even even think we would be on board with this. We have no interest in aligning with corporate Democrats whatsoever. So this is a pathetic attempt to get you to try uh, to get us to try to come to your rescue. It's not happening, Claire. We don't care about you. I'm sorry. 
Uh, if you're primaried, great. That's that's a good thing for America because maybe we can get someone in office who actually cares about us and isn't just looking out for their career. Mayor Catherine Pugh of Baltimore was recently elected in 2016, and one of her main campaign promises was that she would get elected and raise the minimum wage. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here's what she had to say about the minimum wage. I don't think there's anybody that wants more to see the minimum wage increase than I do. And in fact, I fought very hard, along with my other colleagues, in Annapolis to increase the minimum wage. I don't think there's anybody that wants to see the minimum wage increased more than I do. Excellent. This is what I wanted to hear. So the good news is that the Baltimore City Council recently passed a bill that would in fact raise the minimum wage to $15 by 2022. Now they would do this gradually uh, every couple of years. So this is a great way to stimulate the economy. Uh, this will really help the residents of Baltimore. So since you have a pro minimum wage mayor and a city council that just passed a $15 minimum wage bill, this should theoretically be a win for progressives, right? Well, actually, during the press conference about this bill, something really weird happened, opposite of what you think would have happened. So I believe that it is in the best of interest of the city that we follow the state, that we are on an increase currently, which again, I reiterate, will take place this July 1, 2017, and then again, 2018, and I think we take a look at what happens in Annapolis because you know how sometimes it takes a few years for a bill to, to get passed and it's already been introduced. So for those reasons and the economic impact that I think that this has on the city making us the hole in the donut, it is not appropriate at this time that I would sign this bill. So I am vetoing this bill. Okay, any questions? I have a question. So... Why would you campaign on raising the minimum wage if you would ultimately veto a bill one city council tried to raise the minimum wage? So in other words, you brazenly lied to your constituents. And she talked about this all the time on the campaign trail. She talked about how she wanted to raise the minimum wage. But she vetoed it once they actually raised the minimum wage. Now, her reasoning for this is twofold. So, first of all, she claims that the state already raised the minimum wage to $9 and a quarter. So, Baltimore, you know, they shouldn't jump ahead of the state. They should follow the lead of the state. And for her second reason, she actually uses right-wing talking points to justify her decision. The Baltimore Sun explains that while she supported the higher wage during the campaign, she has warned for weeks that she was concerned a $15 minimum wage in Baltimore would hurt city businesses and stretch an already tight budget. Now, let me remind you that raising the minimum wage does not hurt businesses, especially if you do it gradually. And this bill in fact, did that. Now, what's really sad about this story is that Mayor Pugh actually had grassroots momentum behind her. Her constituents actually believed that she would, in fact, raise the minimum wage because she talked about it constantly. In a Facebook post from a local union leader, Mark McLaren, he wrote, I regret asking them to give their weekends and evenings to knock on doors for her based largely on my assurances 
about who she was and what her value system was. I'm so really bitterly disappointed, McLaren said in an interview. We had members out for her every single weekend. I'm now getting calls from all those members asking what happened. Now again, to remind you, she talked about raising the minimum wage at campaign events all the time. However, she's now saying, well, you know what? The state, they're already raising the minimum wage to nine bucks an hour, so we're done. We can wash her hands with it. Not, not to mention that, you know, $9 is much different than $15 an hour. It would make a substantial difference in the lives of people that live in Baltimore. But you know what? The state's raising the minimum wage. So why would you come to me, someone who you elected to raise the minimum wage? Go to your state government. I mean, this is so frustrating, and people wonder why progressives are so hard on Democrats. See, at least with the Republicans, they just outright say, you know what, we're not going to raise the minimum wage. But for this individual, this liar, she campaigned on raising the minimum wage, and when city council does it, she vetoes it. This is why the Democratic Party has been wiped out at every single level at government. It's because they just brazenly lie to their constituents. They campaign on certain values. They pretend to be with you. They pretend to be with the grassroots. But the minute they get the chance to betray you, they stick that knife in it and then they twist it. This is such a disgusting move that everyone who lives in Baltimore should be petitioning people in city council to override this veto or... They should be protesting outside of Catherine Pugh's office because what she did, the lie that she told her constituents who influenced grassroots activists to knock on doors for her when she was going to betray them, it's reprehensible. What you did, Catherine, is despicable. You're a liar. Hey guys, so I am here with the founder of the Draft Bernie Sanders movement. His name is Nick Branham. Uh, Nick, first of all, before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And also, you worked for Bernie Sanders, so can you tell us your position and kind of what you did for Bernie Sanders and Our Revolution and what you're doing now with Draft Bernie? Yeah, great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being uh, here, yeah. I was uh, on, uh, I joined the Bernie campaign and I worked in national political outreach. I was the national political outreach coordinator, the deputy to the political director. And uh, in that role, I did mostly outreach to the superdelegates, also outreach to other elected officials uh, on the state, local level, all kinds, and as well as uh, organizing Bernie's political meetings with them, trying to get, uh, <laughs> which is always kind of like pulling teeth with Bernie. You know, Bernie loved meeting with people, not so much with, uh, with politicians. Um, and then I also did some convention planning uh, towards the end of the campaign. Uh, and after that, I went on to join our revolution uh, as a founding member, as the uh, electoral manager in charge of vetting and uh, going through candidates uh, for our revolution to endorse. Great, great. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, the draft Bernie cause, uh, what it's doing and why you formed Draft Bernie as someone who worked with Bernie Sanders before. What's the goal of this, and why are you doing this? Yeah, so after the election, uh, after Donald Trump won, I thought, um, you know, like everyone else, wow, this is terrible, you know. Uh, what can we do? There was kind of this period of strategic reorientation, you know, for the movement. What are we going to do? Uh, and I thought... Um, I, I looked into history about uh, how third parties essentially had been formed in the past, and I realized that uh, while what the Green Party and the Libertarian Party were trying to do, 
uh, is very difficult and has never worked, essentially trying to grow from the ground up into nothing. That has never, a, a party that has tried to do that has never become the ma a major party in the United States. Right. But there, I did find that there was a successful model, and that's actually how the Democratic and the Republican parties became major parties in the first place. And that was when popular politicians built up a following inside an existing party, an existing establishment party. And then they, after showing the limits of that party, showing what it was, how far it could go, essentially, in terms of representing uh, a neglected majority, that the, that the elites of that party were essentially uh, not responsive to. Then they took that following and they formed a new party with it. And so Lincoln uh, in forming the Republican Party is the, just a fantastic example. It's a classic example in the way that he uh, and others formed the Republican Party after the Whig Party approved a pro-slavery platform against its base. Um, and so uh, looking at where, what Bernie is now, you know, and the following that he has now, I thought, well, gee, that's Bernie Sanders exactly today, you know, and he built uh, thinking about the coalition that he put together in the primaries. I think I thought, wow, that coalition right there is the new party, basically. That's it, you know, and he did that in one year, you know, and I just think, wow, imagine what we could do if we had three and a half years, you know, with that kind of coalition and that kind of base to start with. You know, I think the party's already there. It's just a question of reassembling it. Right. No, to kind of follow up with that, so do you think that it would be acceptable still if Bernie Sanders were to join the Green Party, for example, whereas, you know, they've existed for decades, they have the infrastructure and whatnot all in place, or do you really do feel as though it's preferable to have a brand new party, you know, a fresh start. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's something I kind of wanted to ask you. Yeah, I think it would be better. <laughs> There's a lot, almost anything would be better than what we're doing now, I think. Um, you know, the Democrats have made it very clear that they're, that they do not intend on being the vehicle for the political revolution. And they've also made it clear that we don't have enough leverage to really impact them, you know, uh, and their decision making. And so I do think that it would be better. But I think it would be second best to Bernie starting a new party, you know, and the minute Bernie does anything, then that becomes right now, as I'm sure you've seen, and we all know, there's all kinds of parallel efforts out there. You know, there's just dozens of smaller parties who are getting started, you know, uh, everybody's essentially trying to unite under, under a single banner, you know, here and there across the country. Uh, the minute that Bernie started a party, that would be it. You know, that would be the unifying banner that everyone would come together around. Because like I said, he already did it. And so I think that while joining the Green Party would, would be better, uh, I do think that uh, starting a new party um, would be the best because it would be the most invigorating for people. I, you know, in, in, I've spent a lot of time talking to people and burners about kind of what they want, you know, and you would think that the Green Party would be kind of like a perfect solution, you know, have, it's, okay, it's there, it has ballot access in like 19 states, you know, but I've found that Burns really want to build something new, you know, and right. regardless of which path we take, 
it has to, it, it's going to rely on inspiring people. You have to actually bring people um, into the fold. And the, the other thing too is that I think that the Green Party has an association kind of as a far left party, you know? Mm -hmm. And we as progressives identify with that, you know, and we have no problem with that. But there's the coalition that Bernie put together was actually much larger than kind of the left. You know, right. than progressives. It was actually conservatives. You know, especially in Vermont, like conservatives love him and where where they know him most. You know, we've seen him doing these town halls recently, where uh, where conservatives just come uh, are so attracted to what he's saying too. You know, and so that's why the uh, the idea of building something that really is kind of a party for the ninety nine percent. You know, that can't just be progressive. It has to be all working people. You know, and and Bernie's, I think the best suited and totally capable of doing that. Right. Now, one question that I have um, kind of in response to, you know, how do you get, you know, a different party other than the Democrats and Republicans built from the ground up is, so for your vision for the People's Party, do you envision this being like a third party where it competes alongside Democrats and Republicans? Or do you kind of see this as just a complete replacement to the Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I think we've reached the point um, that the Whig Party did in 1852. And that's where the two parties are so unpopular, in particular the Democratic Party, that really um, there's a party within a party. You know, it's, it's progressives within the Democratic Party. And they happen to be the great majority of the party, just like they are the majority of the country when you go down issue polls. And... So really, when you when you realize that, then the Democratic Party takes a different uh, it takes a different connotation. Really, the Democratic Party is not really something that's advancing working people's rights, but it's some it's it's preventing the uh, arising of a new actual left party. You know, it's taking the place of something that should be a progressive party, in my view. Uh, because that's where the left electorate wants to be. So Right. Now, one thing. So the whole premise of the People's Party kind of lies on Bernie Sanders leading this new party. Now, in an interview recently, Bernie Sanders stated that he rejects the idea that he should be the leader of a new party. So at this point, where do you go from here? I mean, do you continue to try to put pressure on Bernie Sanders to join a party? Um, I mean, what do we do if we can't get Bernie Sanders to join the People's Party? Because I love the idea but it's just a matter of trying to get Bernie Sanders to wake up. And he knows that the Democratic Party, you know, they're, they're not representing us. So, I mean, do we keep trying to pressure Bernie? I mean, what is your response to that? So, first of all, you're referring to the Meet the Press interview, right? Right, right. So, I, so for, for your viewers who, who haven't heard of this, uh, the Meet the Press, uh, just a few days after we launched, Bernie was asked on Meet the Press about us. He was said, hey, uh, they said, Chuck Todd told him, hey, some of your former staffers uh, would like, and supporters would like to draft you uh, to essentially start a new party. And far from rejecting it, Bernie actually kept the door open to it. Let me ask you a question. Some of your for former staffers, including Nick Brana, has a draft Bernie for a people's party movement. Essentially, they want to start a new political party. Uh, in this statement, it said this, despite Bernie Sanders' monumental endeavor to bring people into the Democratic Party, people are leaving it by the millions. The collective efforts to reform the party cannot stem the tide of people who are going independent, let alone expand the Democratic base. What do you say to those efforts? 
Well, I say two things. Right now, we are in a pivotal moment in American history. Uh, we have a president who is delusional in many respects. To answer your question, I think what we need to do right now is focusing on bringing the American people together around a progressive agenda. American people want to raise the minimum wage. They want to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. They want the wealthiest okay. people in this country to start paying their fair share of taxes. They want the United States to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to all people as a right. So if the Democratic Party isn't that vehicle, then you would support something like that? But you still believe now, the Democratic right now, Party is that right, vehicle? Right now, Chuck, I am working to bring fundamental reform to the Democratic Party, to open the doors of the Democratic Party to working people, to okay. lower income people, to young people who have not felt welcome in the embrace of the Democratic Party. You know, when you go and watch the video, you, it's clear that Bernie said he, he did not reject it. Rather, what he said is, I'm working in the Democratic Party right now. You know, hmm. and he's at, and he's been saying that before, actually. And in the past, he said that a third party is on the table. And Chuck, despite Chuck Todd's attempt to get him essentially to rule it out, all he would say is, no, I'm working in the Democratic Party right now. He would not speak to the future, essentially. Hmm. And so when you think, uh, when you realize that, and when you put that in the context of what Bernie was trying to do at the time, so at the time Bernie was working, you know, he he was trying to lobby Democrats for the importation of uh, drugs from Canada. He was also trying to lobby the Democratic establishment for Keith Ellison to be chair. And so it would have been very easy and politically expedient for Bernie actually to say to say that for him to just say no. You know, like, I won't do that. I'm with the Democratic Party, you know, and I'm committed to this approach, like, you know, from here on out. Uh, but but that's not what he said. Instead, you know, he he chose to actually leave the door open by not ruling it out, by not taking it off the table, despite Chuck Todd's attempt to get him to do that. You know, so that actually is very um, it's very inspiring, you know, that's good. Uh, what we're trying to do. So, yes. Right. So, and, and, and you I, know, Bernie. So, <laughs> yes, I, I have to you know, I'm, I'm speaking to what's publicly available. You know, right that interview. And then what he has also said in the past uh, publicly about a third party being an option. And Jane has said it. And all of this is all like on video, you know, uh, and we put out a video actually a few weeks ago, kind of a, a, a montage of those clips, some of them. Uh, but I, I have to tell you myself personally, if I did not know that this was that this wasn't an option that and that Bernie Sanders uh, was not actually, you know, that this was not on the table for Bernie, I wouldn't be doing it. And right. I know that both from the videos, and I know that myself because, uh, because I'm, I'm in contact with people, uh, essentially in Bernie's camp. Well, and this is a lot of work, you're not going to waste your time if you think that the effort is going to go nowhere. So I mean, as someone who worked with Bernie, what do you think the chances are of him um, joining the People's Party, let's say, like in a year or two? I mean, do you think that this is something that, you know, he's going to try to work with Democrats a little bit longer. Like, what do you think is going to ultimately happen with this? So I think that um, the sooner we do it, the better, because we we need that leverage. To me, it's a win-win, you know, because if you the minute you do it, um, that's when, if anything, is going to convince Democrats, you know, to come to the table and to actually start adopting progressive policies, that's going to do it. You know, because if they're not going to come to the table when you existentially threaten their party, 
then they weren't going to do it for any other reason, you know? So the sooner we do it, the better, I think, because if we did it, we could, uh, we could run candidates in 2018 and we could follow in the footsteps of what the Republican party did to replace the Whig party, which is first in those first two years, they secured a number of congressional seats, uh, which were very influential. And then in four years, they took over, uh, they, they essentially had replaced uh, the Whig Party at that point, taken over the House of Representatives. And in six years, they had entirely wiped out uh, any, basically anything that remained of the Whig Party and elected Abraham Lincoln uh, president. And so we could follow in those footsteps. So the sooner we do it, the better. You know, I would certainly hope that it wouldn't take something like um, like losses in 2018, you know, to to, to finally motivate that. Uh, so I, I think that what it's going to take to get Bernie on board is to show him that the, that the momentum is on the side of a new party, that the momentum is on the side of an independent alternative. Um, and I certainly think that it is. We recently had Josh Fox on our first national organizing call. Josh Fox has endorsed us. Uh, Lee Camp, you know, Josh Fox, Bernie surrogate. Um, uh, we had Lee Camp the next week. Hmm. And so I think that's what it's going to take. Because when Bernie realizes that the progressive movement, uh, progressive momentum is in favor of something new, you know, then Bernie knows that he needs the enthusiasm of the movement to, to do whatever he's going to do, you know, to, hmm. to win no matter what strategy he wants to take. So that's when I think we're going to get Bernie Sanders. Right. And see, this actually gives me hope. Because you are citing history. And, you know, whenever I talk about the People's Party, so far I've only talked about it as a means of us getting leverage on the Democratic Party. But you make such a great point about, well, this is historical. Yes, we do live in a two-party system because of our electoral institutions. However, you can have alternative options replace one of the two main parties. It's not impossible. I mean, you cited it, it historically is something that's happened in the past. So I think that's great. Now, you kind of alluded to this in the beginning of your answer here, but so Kyle Kalinske, who is one of the founders of Justice Democrats, he was recently asked about uh, People's Party, and he said that he supports this idea. And I'm someone who's kind of in the middle where I feel like, you know what, I support every single approach that we could just get the policies we need. So I kind of want to pose the same question to you. As someone who's part of the People's uh, Party, what do you say to people like Kyle Kalinske who are trying to reform the party uh, internally as opposed to just doing an external route. I mean, what do you say about all these other approaches to reform the party? Do you support that as well? Or do you feel as though we should just exclusively be trying to launch, a, you know, a, a different option? Well, I, I support what, what I think is most effective, you know. And having gone back into history, having worked with the superdelegates, having seen firsthand just how ingrained that establishment perspective and mentality is, you know, the way that they live in a completely different reality uh, from us, you know, and how their interests are so inextricably tied. I mean, corporate money, which is really at the heart during the Bernie campaign, we all understood that corporate money is at the heart of the corruption, you know, inside the Democratic Party. Well, what I see now in the Democratic Party is that you know, eliminating corporate money, getting rid of lobbyist money, getting rid of super PAC, you know, uh, super PACs, coordination with super PACs, um, taking money from billionaires and corporations, uh, the revolving door, ending all of that is not even on the table, you know? So I think 
how in the world are we supposed to take back uh, our country and our government from the oligarchs if we're not even challenging those fundamental mechanisms of control, you know, that they hold over uh, the, the left party in the United States? So I do think that at this point, it would be most effective you know, to, uh, to focus on building a new party. Does that mean that I, you know, actively like chide or uh, draft Bernie actively chides people who are trying to reform the Democratic Party? No, obviously, both of them are worthy endeavors, you know, and, and they actually, they actually build off of each other. I think there's this misconception that they, uh, that they're competing, right? Uh, and, and that they're just, you know, opposed and that it is one way or the other. And while I do think that it is more effective to push for a new party and to, to push to draft Bernie to do it, uh, because I, I know that's possible, I, uh, I still think that everyone who is working to reform the party, you know, is working in tandem and is working in conjunction. And all progressives are really working in conjunction uh, towards that end. And another thing that I'd like to say is that I wrote you earlier uh, mentioning that um, it's, I think it's really important that progressives uh, see this kind of strategic discussion in that way and that we not, you know, to not let it kind of deteriorate into acrimony or bitterness or something like right. that. So for us really to be at the table together discussing these things, you know, I see uh, draft Bernie's role not as... Um, kind of demanding that everybody has to do one thing, you know, uh, rather, I think that what it is, is saying, here's the information, you know, which a lot of people don't have. And when they find out, when they realize, Hey, there's an alternative, there's historical precedent to it. You know, uh, we've seen what the Democrats are doing. Then they, they think, well, gee, that sounds like a pretty good option. You know, and so that's how I see Draft Bernie's role and my role is in arming people with information so that they can make their own choice. You know, and so I would actually hope uh, I've reached out to Justice Democrats and I've said, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's have an open discussion, you know, where we sit down with representatives of each of us, you know, and there could be other groups if uh, if they wanted that be perfectly fine with that. But we just have a discussion as a movement, mm -hmm. uh, putting things on the table and saying, where should we go? You know, what what is the case for each, you know, for each? Like, let's weigh our options here. You know, we don't have to kind of be, see ourselves as adversaries. And I think that would actually be really refreshing to the movement to have that kind of, you know, roundtable discussion uh, among people, representatives of different strategic perspectives saying, well, where should we go? I think that would be really popular. And I think that's the kind of thing that a lot of people are looking to, because I think a lot of people actually haven't made up their mind mm -hmm. about where we should go. Right. And I think that you kind of make a really important point. It's that these different movements, they're not mutually exclusive. You don't have to subscribe to, to one. You don't have to choose, well, should I be with Justice Democrats or people's or, you know, the draft for any People's Party. For me, I've kind of been, uh, you know, I've stated this before, I'm a kitchen sink approach. Let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Because at the end of the day, you know, I don't see them as competitors either. I think that's that's such a great point. We all want the same thing. We want a single-payer healthcare system. We don't want people to die or go bankrupt if they have a medical emergency. So it's, it's really simple. It's just a matter of how do we get these things? And I think that that's a great point. 
uh, that you make about, you know, everyone just kind of coming together. That would be, that's kind of like the progressive Avengers, right? That'd be badass. I think that'd be to see all these arguments, uh, uh, um, organizations kind of coalesce around a huge, big overarching strategy, you know, just how they're going to approach it through different angles. I love the idea. I think that'd be great. Um, okay, so one last thing I want to ask you, or basically allow you to do is I want you to address people who are still skeptical about draft Bernie. What do you say to them? The people who say this is never going to work, Bernie will never get on board with this. What is your message to those people? How do you convince them to get on board? And um, if you can convince them, well, actually, we'll, we'll start with that and then um, we'll do the follow-up afterwards. I would say um, that what a lot of what we have to do now, a lot of I think what's important now is um, learning, kind of remembering the lessons and taking them to heart of the Bernie campaign. You know, that campaign was truly extraordinary in terms of political, you know, in, in terms of kind of political tradition, you know. Um, Bernie started the campaign with no money, no name recognition, and a hostile media, an antagonistic party, uh, an anointed candidate who was a household name, you know, any one of those factors would have taken down a lesser candidate. But Bernie succeeded nonetheless. Like, he sparked a political revolution, got more than 13 million votes, uh, and he's the most popular politician in America. By All far. he had, by, by far, all he had when he did that was his message and his integrity. That's all he started with. And it's, I, I think it's really one of the most important things that we can take to heart now is the power of those things, you know? So people fret over, you know, oh, but like, you know, how do you, how do you get the money? How do you, you know, win over the minority? How do, you know, how do you do all of these things? But just going back to that, we saw what we accomplished, you know, and a lot of progressives wondered this before the Bernie campaign. They said, what if we just threw out the incrementalist logic and we just ran on our issues, you know, without filtering them, just on our issues um, unabashedly. And we saw what happened when Bernie did it. And so I would say that we need to, we need to keep that in mind. That's the power of what we did. You know, and so I think that, along with everything else we've discussed, leads me to believe that that integrity from which everything else sprung, you know, Bernie's name recognition, his popularity, the money, the quarter of a billion dollars that we raised, everything came from that. You know, so if we just keep that, you know, if we continue to espouse our vision without filtering it, essentially, with, without succumbing to the incrementalist logic that is tempting the movement at this point, you know, then I think we'll be more successful than we can imagine. That's great. Okay, now the follow-up is, um, if you did convince people, which I think that you're, ma you're making a very compelling argument, um, so how can we support Draft Bernie? I mean, what, what do we do from here if we want to get involved? Are there volunteer opportunities? Can people donate to Draft Bernie? I mean, what can we do to help this movement? Yes, thanks for asking. So we have, um, we have a website. It's draftbernie.org. Uh, we've got social media platforms also. Uh, we're on Facebook, Draft Bernie for a People's Party. We're also on Twitter, uh, Reddit, Instagram. Uh, and the greatest things that you can do uh, to help are, first of all, sign the petition that we have to Bernie. Um, 
that is something that uh, that people around Bernie have said it, it will be uh, will be convincing. You know, if we can uh, build that up and really show that. And so another thing that we're doing is we're we've got a field plan. Uh, and we're, we actually just picked a number of state leads uh, who will be leading canvassing uh, weekly in those states to collect petition signatures on the ground. Uh, so I would say uh, to, to support us, please spread the word on social media. Uh, make sure you sign the petition. Send the petition to everyone you know. Uh, and also, we have something called a crowd pack, uh, which is a way for you to donate to the new party conditionally uh, condition that's conditioned on Bernie founding it essentially. So if Bernie founds it, then that money would go to the new party to act like a seed fund to get the party up and running. There's a, there's a hundred thousand bucks in there right now. So I would say go go there and contribute to the new party. If Bernie doesn't start it, the money doesn't go anywhere. So it's just a great way of uh, of showing Bernie interest along with terrifying the establishment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, thank you for bringing me on. Of course. Uh, thank you for being on. I really hope, too, that, uh, that we can have uh, that strategic discussion as a movement. You know, I'm going to continue to reach out to, uh, to Justice Democrats and say, let's sit down together, essentially. Uh, and let's, have, let's go back and forth on what the pros and cons are on this, you know? There's no reason for us to see ourselves as adversaries. And I actually think that the movement would find that very refreshing, right? you know, to say like, oh, okay, here we are. We're all, you know, we might have strategic differences, but we're all progressives at the end of the day. We all have the same goals, you know, around the same issues. Uh, and, and we can come together and have an invigorating discussion about where we should go. Right. You know, so... I would say I, I think that's something that we really need uh, as a movement. I think we should have had that discussion in November, actually. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we, in November, we should have sat down and thought, all right, where do we go you know, from here? Like, you know, we could do this, we could do that, and put our all, all of our options on the table and thought about it. You know, but we didn't really do it back then. And so now, you know, I think we're doing it now. You know? And, and that, it's a really healthy thing for the movement, I think. Right. All right. Well, there you guys have it. That is uh, Nick Branagh of Draft Bernie. Check it out. Well, that's all I got for you guys. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. If you are a member of the Independent Progressive Media Revolution, if you support us through PayPal, uh, through Patreon, through humanistsupport.com, thank you so much for helping us to not just survive, but also to thrive. We are quickly approaching 100,000 subscribers, and I'm really excited. I will be planning something special. I plan to do a live show, and I also plan to finally reveal the things that I have not been able to talk about i guess i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about them yet but i've kind of kept them quiet but big announcements for the channel that are really exciting that will help us to grow even more so thank you all so much for tuning in i am looking forward to our road to uh 100,000 to be over soon we are almost i we're almost 100,000 guys this is crazy so thank you all for tuning in uh, i will see you all next week have a great day